Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Irritable Bowel Syndrome, or IBS for short, is the Rodney Dangerfield of medicine. It's a condition that gets no respect. If you remember Rodney Dangerfield from like Caddyshack or any of those movies he was in. For years, people with IBS were labeled neurotic or of a weak constitution, all of it quite negative. And mainly because doctors and even gastroenterology specialists couldn't identify a specific cause, no, no less a cure. You know, unlike gastric ulcers, which are visible on an endoscopy and now are, you know, in many cases are known due to H. pylori, IBS was really a black box mystery. My guest today, Dr. Mark Pimentel and his associates at Cedars-Sinai Hospital at UCLA, they changed all that. He was one of the first gastroenterologists to show that, in fact, IBS, in many cases, was due to another now popular acronym, SIBO, which stands for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. And almost as important as discovering the cause of IBS, he has come up with a treatment as well. You know, it's funny. I came across Dr. Pimentel's book, The New IBS Solution. This is almost a decade old. It was funny. I was at a medical conference. And it was actually a functional medicine conference in New York. And there was a, a booth there, I think from Commonwealth Labs. And they were giving the books away for free. So, you know, doctors, they'll take anything that's for free. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I took the book. And what, what's really interesting is that I remember reading it a little bit back then, but I hadn't seen too many cases of, you know, SIBO testing. I wasn't sure if it was all done in laboratories and then over the years in my practice, because I do immunology and functional medicine, I see a ton of IBS patients. And all of a sudden, so many of them were coming with these SIBO tests. So all of a sudden, it became super important. So I revisited this book and I found it to be really a gem. But of course, I'm really excited to have the man in person, Dr. Pimentel, to tell us more about it. So finally, Dr. Pimentel is the head of the Pimentel Laboratory and executive director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program, I'm interested to what that is, at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and an assistant professor at the David Geffen UCLA School of Medicine. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Pimentel to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Dean. And uh, the reference to Rodney Dangerfield is funny because I've been watching a few of his videos with Johnny Carson recently. And- uh-huh. Probably a lot of listeners don't know either of those personnel. <laughs> I started to think about that. I thought, you see, I had to almost explain that. I mean, because yeah. any of us who grew up, you know, in the 70s or 80s, they knew Rodney Dangerfield, not only from his his stand-up. I think he did all those Miller Lite commercials. I mean, and of course, some of the, I think, Caddyshack with um, Adam Sandler. I think so, right? Was that? Yeah, was that he was there. Yeah. I don't know. He was in a lot of them. He His eyes bulging out, and, you know, I don't get any respect and tugging at his neck or his <laughs> shirt collar, right? But that's how I, I kind of feel with IBS. I feel for the patients. So yeah. anyway, what I like to start out with, just for my own personal interest, is each 
of my guests, I always like to know a little bit about their background. So I'm curious in your case, I know you're originally from Canada. Fortunately, we were able to, I don't know if it's export or import you to the United States. How did you end up coming to the U.S. for more training or practice? And, and also my second part of the question is, why, why did you choose the field of gastroenterology? Well, I'll answer the second question first. Brown okay. is my favorite color. Um, <laughs> but okay. you know, I, I, I grew up in Canada in a relatively small city called Thunder Bay, and that's in the book. But trained in Winnipeg, and I had a mentor in Winnipeg who had trained at UCLA. And my wife was American. We got married in Canada. She was up in Canada. And so it made it pretty easy to come to the U.S. because of that uh, marriage. And we're still married here 25, 26 years later. That's nice. Well, we decided to do gastroenterology because I thought that gastroenterology was an interesting organ uh, or a set of organs. Because if you think about a worm, a worm has a GI tract, really doesn't have a heart. So the GI tract is pretty evolved and complicated and interesting and fascinating. And I started in microbiology, and here I am now in microbiology of the gastrointestinal oh, tract. that's very interesting. And, and oh. so I think I've done a sort of a full circle moment with my career, and, and I love what I'm doing in terms of studying the microbes in the gut, and SIBO is part of that story. Yeah, I think that's a, it's such a great answer. And it, ma it makes sense now because, as you know, so many of your colleagues. Now, I remember like when I did training in internal medicine in New York and gastroenterology was a very sought after specialty training. It was prestigious, lucrative. You know, a lot of the I, and I know some of the smartest residents in my program wanted to do it because they were like, gosh, you know, you could. You know, you scope someone, you do a colonoscopy, you do an endoscopy, you find cancers, you know, you find an ulcer. So they were really, you know, almost a little bit like the cardiologist. They like that, they like that hard stuff, you know. We don't, we don't like anything that's a little bit fuzzy-wuzzy or anything like that. But, but, you know, with the microbiome and what's happened now in medicine, and I have to give a lot of credit to the functional medicine people. I think they kind of really pushed the envelope on that. But people like yourself and Alessio Fasano, who I've had on the podcast from Harvard, are really making us look at what's going on in the microbiome in that balance between good and bad bacteria in the gut, which again, the functional medicine community, and now I think more doctors in general are realizing, whereas Leslie Fasano would say is what happens in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. And that's what's also so interesting. I'd like to move on to the condition irritable bowel syndrome. As I mentioned earlier, very much a black box for a long time frustrated doctors, they would you know, prescribe antidepressants for these patients, anti-anxiety medications. They didn't know what diet to give them. How would you explain for our listeners, how, how would you define irritable bowel syndrome? Well, it depends on what era you're talking about. Back in the 90, late 80s, irritable bowel syndrome was just basically a diagnosis of exclusion. And for your listeners, that means that you do the scopes, you don't find cancer, you don't right. find Crohn's disease, you don't find an ulcer, you find nothing. Right. And you say, well, if you have diarrhea and abdominal pain and bloating, you have IBS because we don't have any other better term for it. And essentially, it's a dismissed group of individuals, basically, by the whole definition of this diagnosis of exclusion. And while we've attempted to define it with these criteria, you may have heard of like Rome criteria and so forth, they're basically criteria applied to the wastebasket of leftover people in order to find people who might fit for clinical trials. And so that's where IBS started. But the reality is IBS is a condition where it can hit you anytime. You could be sitting in an airport, just about ready to get on a plane, and all of a sudden you have diarrhea and abdominal pain and you're stuck in the bathroom for half an hour, or you get buckled into your seat on the airplane, 
And now's the time you need to go to the bathroom. And they're saying, you can't undo your That's a nightmare. <laughs> it's a nightmare. That's a nightmare on a plane. I think, I think if anything, that's why I always eat very light when I'm going traveling and when I'm on a plane, because having to use the bathroom on the plane, nightmare. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But imagine, imagine the patient oh, experiencing God. that on a regular basis oh, and how, how traumatic that is. But, but to your point about antidepressants and all of this, there is no proof, and I mean this, there's no level one evidence that stress, anxiety, or psychological trauma leads to IBS directly. Right. There is proof that stress causes your blood pressure to go up or you asthma, have a little bit more sure. loose bowel movements or asthma, or, but as a cause and effect, it's not there. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. You know, that leads me to my next question. So when you see a patient that's been either tells you, I, have, I think I have irritable bowel syndrome, I've been told by other doctors, do you find it obviously important, as you mentioned, to rule out other things? Do all these patients typically need an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, you know, sonograms? I mean, before you make, you know, since it is difficult, even though we're going to get to some of the breakthrough things that you came up with, but do you still feel that those things should be done? Well, I think, I think you got to look at it from the point of view of the doctor and mm -hmm. from the point of view of the patient. Mm -hmm. And so we have quote, educated, and I'm using that in quotations, educated doctors that IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So doctor, once mm. you have decided that there's no other illness, you can apply this diagnosis. What does that mean as a doctor? That mm. doctor says, well, should I do a colonoscopy? What, if the onus is on me, I better damn well make sure there's right, nothing else. Right. And then you spend all this money and these patients go through these morbid procedures like colonoscopy at the age of 25. I'll give you an example. Yeah, that's a good point. I have a, I have a 25 year old woman mm. who came to my office. She, I asked her, have you ever had a colonoscopy? She says she's had three, oh, a 25 year old woman who's had three normal colonoscopies. How is that possible? Well, after the first one is normal, what in God's name provoked the second gastroenterologist to say we should do it again. Mm. And then the third, even more insane, but, but this is what these patients experience. Yeah. And, and the point is, the reason all this, you know, the, the guidelines that are published in the literature say you don't need a colonoscopy for under 45 if you're ruling out IBS. You don't need stool tests, but they still do it. And the reason they still do it is because, and this is what we've been working towards, you need a biomarker. You need to know you have IBS to say, okay, stop. Mm -hmm. Your test is positive. You have IBS. Let's move on and stop wasting money and your time and putting you through procedures that could hurt you. Do you think also, because again, you're from Canada, that that would not happen in Canada in a different system? Do you think, I just, uh, if you talk to some of your colleagues up there, I'm just curious, or other parts of the world? Well, I, I think in Canada, there's more financial checks and balances. In some respects, there's wait lists for colonoscopy. So thing, you know, things can drag out. Mm -hmm. Because of those wait lists, physicians will prioritize patients who need a big polyp taken out or have a cancer that needs to be removed. So there, there's other reasons why the abuse of, of colonoscopy is mm. not as much. Mm. So I would, I would agree with you that it's probably less. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the test that you, you bring up in this book, which really was a game changer in this field for patients. And, and I think for doctors, how did you come to look at bacterial overgrowth and specifically a breath test? It's interesting to identify these uh, IBS patients? Well, the irony about breath testing is it's been around since the 70s and 80s. Oh, no. It started with hydrogen and then they added methane, but didn't tell us why methane was added to the instrument. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we started doing research in around 1999 that we started to see, well, hey, you know, you're bloated and gas and distension. 
that bloating could be due to fermentation in the gut and maybe it's bacterial buildup. And we started to publish our first papers and of course, a lot of controversy about it because even though a lot of doctors were doing breath tests for overgrowth, as soon as you said overgrowth was causing IBS, they were like, are you kidding? This test is terrible. And so pushing back on the test. But over time, as we've seen a tremendous amount of papers published and more recently, a meta-analysis of 25 studies in IBS, full stop, a proportion of IBS has bacterial overgrowth. And now with culture studies showing 60% of IBS with diarrhea, it's overgrowth. It's reminiscent, as you pointed to in the beginning, of H. pylori and peptic ulcer disease, because Mm -hmm. that's about the same percentage. So SIBO is part of IBS in about 60% of the cases. Oh, well, that's really important for our listeners to know who are suffering with this chronic problem. Do you believe, because I know when I read your book, and it's interesting, as I said, the first time and and now I've ordered the test kits on patients of my own, or, or they've come in with, from other doctors that have ordered it. Do you feel the home test kits are as good as, I don't know if they used to do it in a doctor's office, and does it matter which lab? You know, some of the more popular ones that I see are done, a Genova or Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. What's your, your feeling on that? I mean, because again, it's, you're putting it in the patient's hand to do this correctly. Right. So there are some challenges. Each kit has its own limitations. For example, when you blow with a straw into an open tube, it's open to the air. So you're going to lose or contaminate to some extent. But full disclosure, I've been working with a company in California because we've added a third gas, which is very important. So with breath testing, there's hydrogen, which correlates with nothing. But if it's positive, you have overgrowth. The third is there's methane on the breath test, which correlates with constipation. So the higher the methane, the more constipated you are, and you treat that differently. And the third gas we were never able to measure, and is the reason breath testing has been somewhat controversial, is hydrogen sulfide. And hydrogen sulfide correlates with diarrhea. And there's only oh, one wow. test that measures now all three. And, uh, and, and what, that test is, is, what is test that? I'm sorry. The test is TrioSmart. And again, in full disclosure, I've been helping this company. Okay. Because that's the complete picture. There are wow. no other fermented gases. Mm-hmm. The problem with hydrogen sulfide is transporting it. It's a reactive gas. You need a special instrument when you get the gas. You need a special bags to transport it so it's stable for seven days. And all that's been worked out. Is, it, is this a home kit also, the Trio Smart? It's a home kit. It's sent to the patient. It's a bag, so nothing gets lost. And it transports extremely well. You said a hydrogen doesn't really correlate to anything because obviously it's on the, the SIBO test. And I thought originally in your book, you you mentioned, I thought that it correlated to diarrhea. So you think that's changed or that was just really never, maybe I'm misinterpreting it? So if you're positive on the breath test, you can have diarrhea. In other words, if your hydrogen and the breath test is a, you know, about two hour test, if at 90 minutes, the hydrogen rises by more than 20 parts per million, then you have overgrowth and overgrowth okay. patients have diarrhea. But Mm. what we never could show is that, let's say your hydrogen is 40, that's abnormal, Mm. or 100, that's abnormal. Mm. Between those two patients, they weren't necessarily different in symptoms Mm -hmm. because we didn't measure hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide really is, uh, the higher that is, the more diarrhea patients have. Interesting. And the hydrogen sulfide organisms use hydrogen as fuel, and the methane organisms use hydrogen as fuel to make methane. So hydrogen really is the rabbit's for the coyotes or the wolves to eat. And it's the coyotes and the wolves that determine your symptoms. Oh, wow, that's really important. Okay. You mentioned in the book also, and again, I've seen many doctors follow, you know, your recommendations about using Zyfaxin as an antibiotic to treat the overgrowth. 
And you mentioned that it's an antibiotic that's actually not absorbed, that it just essentially cleanses the, the GI tract of the overgrowth bacteria. Do we know what bacteria that it's cleaning out? Or Yeah, we know eliminate? a ton about this now. Okay. The last two years, we've been sequencing the small bowel and what's called the reimagined study, which is a really great study we're doing here. So we're taking juice from the small bowel when we do endoscopy, but not colonoscopy, because otherwise you clean your colon out and wash everything through. Mm-hmm. But the point is that study showed that SIBO is E. coli and Klebsiella. Oh, wow. Those two organisms are the ones that are producing hydrogen. And then they feed methanogens and they feed the sulfate reducing bacteria. And that gives you whether you have diarrhea or constipation. But we know a ton about the bacteria that are there. And rifaximin essentially is a non-absorbed antibiotic that it very well kills E. coli and Klebsiella, particularly in the small bowel, doesn't do anything to the colon because it crystallizes when it hits the colon. So it's highly effective for treating overgrowth. And we have a study we published about a year and a half ago that showed that if your breath test is abnormal in your IBS, rifaximin works better than if your breath test was negative and you have IBS. But remember, rifaximin is FDA approved for irritable bowel syndrome. It's not approved for SIBO. But remember, SIBO and IBS are overlapping. Right. So, right. so it's basically IBS with SIBO. You know, I have a decent amount of infectious disease background in my training in immunology. And well, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question about actually anatomy in a second, because because E. coli and Klebsiella are supposed to be in the GI tract, correct? I mean, it's like we know that when they get in the urine, women or men have a problem. When, when bacteria kind of overgrows in the wrong area, organ of the body, we have a problem. That's when infections tend to brew. But our body has E. coli. So why is it just too much of it? Or I mean, because essentially you don't want to wipe out what's supposed to be there. Right. So the reimagined study has allowed us to see the balance. So there's a thing called a network analysis where you see the beautiful, you know, 1000 different bacteria and how they are co-harmonized or harmonized with each other. And yes, E. coli and Klebsiella are there. But what we know now with IBS, and this is another full definitive for your audience, is that food poisoning starts this whole thing. And the food poisoning and a particular toxin that we've identified called CETB, leads to autoimmunity that damages the nerves of the gut. When the gut slows down, E. coli is favored to win. And so even though E. coli is always there, it just ramps up and, and it has that opportunity. We don't understand why being slow means E. coli has a greater advantage, but it does. And we know this from another study where they were, uh, they created adhesions in animals and sure enough, the animals got overgrowth and E. coli was the dominant species of, of bacteria that, that grew up in the, in the small intestine. And when E. coli comes up, it really wipes everything else out. It's a mm. disruptor, as we call it. it. It just disrupts the other organisms. So let me ask you about, because this is fascinating and it's going to get something else too. Like back in medical school, we, uh, we, you know, in physiology, which was very challenging, you know, in your first year of medical school and you're trying to really learn all these things and you're overwhelmed. And I think there was a book called Digestive Digestion. <laughs> I still remember that. It was a, quite an interesting book. But what I learned later on, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the small intestine, I, I think that also is the Rodney Dangerfield organ of the body. It doesn't, you know, because it's hard to see, hard to reach. But is it supposed to be relatively a sterile environment compared to the colon, which is where we dump out all our waste? So, I mean, it's basically a super healthy person should have, is it true, a relatively sterile small intestine? Is that, am I saying that right? 
Well, so that was the thought back then mm -hmm. that the small intestine, because of acid, because of digestive juices, etc., mm -hmm. was relatively sterile. We now know from the sequencing studies and culture studies of the small bowel that's not even close to true. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you for a fact is that from the reimagined study and other papers published by others, the small intestinal microbiome doesn't look anything like the colon. Yeah. Well, colon's like a waste. It's like a, people always make it. It's like a garbage disposal. That's it. It's your say. trash bin on the outside. So why would you look in your trash bin, right. somebody's trash bin, to figure out who lives in the house? You can get maybe magazines or newspaper <laughs> articles. You, you can figure out <laughs> what people inside are like a little bit. But but the other thing that's super important to understand is that imagine the small intestine. You know this from physiology. It's the, if you spread it out. It's the surface area of a tennis court. Yeah. And wow. imagine spreading a thin layer of peanut butter, meaning bacteria, on a tennis court of gut. And mm. that's the absorbing surface of your body. Mm. That's the impact bacteria have on you and manipulating you potentially in the small bowel where the colon, that doesn't happen. So mm. the small bowel is super important. But again, it's Rodney Dangerfield. It's the middle of nowhere. It's, you can't get mm. there easily. So Yeah, it's very right. I know that's why I think it got so ignored. Let me ask you something from the functional medicine aspect, which I felt like I learned a lot from some really good practitioners. A lot of them weren't really researchers like yourself, but they use the term fermenting gut, which I found fascinating because again, sometimes what we forget, and I explain this to patients that I see in my office, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm curious what you think about this. Like people tend to forget, like, you know, let's say you eat a steak it takes hours to digest. It's not like it just, you know, you, you know, of course you could eat it in 10 minutes, but it's sitting there for hours. And then if you eat something like, for example, let's say at the end of a meal, you eat some fruit because, you know, you want to be healthy, quote, but that fruit can't pass through the meat, the steak that's taking hours to go through your system. So a lot of people in the functional medicine area would say, well, you know, that's what develops fermenting gut. Or a lot of these patients who are always burping, belching, they have a fermenting gut. And I want to ask you, because I can, I see this in my practice and maybe it's just, you know, coincidental, but that I see a lot of these patients that have, unfortunately, what I call yeast or candida overgrowth. A lot of them have been on antibiotics for various reasons, for acne. They've been on tetracyclines, minocyclines. They've been on for Lyme disease or recurrent infections. So all of a sudden their microbiome is disrupted. And I'll tell you, Dr. Pimenta, what I have found, it was really interesting because some of these patients I've seen who are still having IBS symptoms They've been on Zyfaxin because, again, they've had positive tests and they've relapsed, which you, you mentioned the book can happen. These patients change their diet to basically a non-fermenting diet, trying to avoid a lot of this high sugar, certain carb foods, and also using antifungals have found them to get better. Just out of curiosity, have you guys ever looked at that? Is that something that, I don't know, you have an opinion one way or the other? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think fungus is an important part of the gut too, and also part of pathology. It reminds me of like 2008, when we first started using rifaximin, amazing. Patients were thought it was a miracle drug. Mm -hmm. Well, now fast forward to 2021, everybody's using rifaximin, and the patients I see and perhaps you see are the ones who tried rifaximin and failed. So were well, they getting, relapsed? I mean, they got better while they were on the treatment, but they didn't didn't last. Right, right. or they yeah, or, or they just keep relapsing. And so we're seeing yeah. now the tip of the iceberg, and the ones who are responding and staying good for two years, you don't we don't see those. Right. And yeah, we're seeing some have CFO, as they call it, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And I don't do a lot of research in that, but Satish Rao does uh, in Georgia, and he and I are good colleagues. And there's a 
small percentage of IBS patients that that might be the explanation. So Interesting. Uh, it's coming. We're starting to understand the microbiome and the small bowel better and better and better. And fungus is part of it. It's part of the story. We just have to define oh. it better. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. As I said, I, you know, what I loved about your book, as I said, even going back on it, and I'm going to get to my next question on this too, is that the open mind is thinking out of the box, which, you know, again, unfortunately, sometimes our colleagues don't do. I don't know why. Maybe it's, I always make the funny example of my patients. I said, you know, doctors, especially here in the United States, when we went through training, every test was a multiple choice exam for obviously for convenience, you know, so there was always an answer. You know, mm-hmm. and if there wasn't an ant, you know, so, and then all of a sudden you get into medical practice and it's like, no, it's not A, B, C, or D. It's sometimes none of the above or, right. and, you know, so I, I think it's a whole mindset. I know when I teach at the medical school, I, I tell them that I said, I'm not, I love the rigor of medicine and you want to be scientific, but sometimes you have to just question whatever you even believed before was true. So one of the things I loved in your book, which really, I tell you, blew me away was because I see these patients in my practice also in immunology. I see patients with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And you have a section in the book talking about this link between, I guess you were seeing back Mm -hmm. in 2010 and before patients with IBS and fibromyalgia. Can you explain a little bit more if it's been more elucidated? Because again, this I thought was amazing was that you felt it was due to endotoxins in the gut that were getting out and causing the pain in patients. Is that still what you... You believe at this point is something changed? Yeah, I think one of the things that we saw and and maybe told a fib at the beginning of this podcast that hydrogen doesn't correlate with anything. The only thing we ever saw with hydrogen was when hydrogen was extreme. Like I'm talking, you know, 150, 200 parts per million. Those patients, which are uncommon in our practice, but those patients, they had body aches and pains and similar symptoms as fibromyalgia. And so I do believe that, for example, E. coli has lipopolysaccharides, LPS, which really triggers your immune response. Right, right. And if you have a lot of that around, you could definitely get an immune response and that could be systemic. So we are also seeing now with the reimagined study changes in cytokines that reverse mm. if you get rid of the overgrowth. And what those cytokines do to make you feel unwell is pretty remarkable or potentially remarkable. So again, more to learn, but I think you're right. Like fatigue is part of this. Brain fog is part of this. That was my next question. I wanted to ask you, do you have any idea why they think they get brain fog? Why does this go? I mean, obviously I'm seeing this with COVID and I see it with chronic fatigue syndrome uh, and candida. Is it because again, these endotoxins are getting, passing the blood brain barrier? Is that, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm sort of, I mean, this is hypothesis because I don't have proof, but the liver is the filter for toxic like polysaccharides and so forth. If a person has liver disease or cirrhosis, as you know, they get hepatic encephalopathy, they get brain fog because their liver can't handle all the toxins. And all the toxins, some of them bypass the liver because there's no no room to clean them out and they get into your circulation and you get brain fog. Uh I think what's happening here is that the amount of toxins coming in exceed your own liver's capacity and are spilling over. And when you reduce the bacteria, your liver can then handle the load. Wow. Uh, that's how I sort of... Oh, I, I like that thinking, though. I mean, obviously, it may take a while to prove that. But, you know, sometimes a lot of times patients want answers. And again, we try to target certain therapies to enhance their ability to detoxify. That gets me to the, my next question, which is the million-dollar question. I hope you're sitting down. I know you are. Probiotics, do they make a difference in IBS? And 
If so, or, you know, I get this question every week in patients, which is the best probiotic? Which is the one I should be taking? How many billions of colonies? So I'm really curious to hear what you think. Well, I have a long answer and a short answer. I'm going to try and keep it in the, I'm going to keep it in the middle. I'm, I'm patient. <laughs> I'm going to keep it in the middle. Okay. But, but, you know, the thing is that you've got probiotic companies who say, well, just because it says that doesn't work, we have the strain that works. And then when you pool all the probiotics together and they, they maybe work, they say, oh, look, probiotics work. So I'm sort of jumping around, but let me go back That's to okay. the meta-analysis for IBS. The meta-analysis yeah. for IBS, if you take apples, oranges, bananas, and strawberries of probiotics and shove them all in one meta-analysis at the bottom, it says, hey, they might work. But when you look at lactobacillus all by itself, regardless of species or strain, it doesn't make mm. the grade. When you yeah. look at bifido, regardless of species or strain, mm-hmm. it doesn't make the grade. So when they want to quote, you know, when probiotic companies want to say, hey, probiotics work, look at this meta-analysis, but the lactobacillus doesn't work and that's what you're selling, you're pointing to the full trial. You know, I, so yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that probiotics are going to have a future. It just requires a little bit more science. Mm. And I think we're going to be in a good place. I'm not against probiotics. I would love to see something work dramatically. You know, that's such a great answer. Well, I'd say it's a great answer because this is kind of what I tell my patients. I always say we're in the early stages of probiotics. I follow this very carefully. And I think what most of the very interesting research is showing is that, and I guess patients can't really appreciate this, it's the diversity of your microbiome. That's the king. It's not so much, oh, I, I have 10 billion units of lactobacillus bifidus. That's not the we evolved to have diversity. And I think it was very interesting. Somebody had, there had been studies done comparing West Germany and East Germany. And it was interesting. There was a lot less autoimmune disease in East Germany where it was, the, you know, the population was poorer and, you know, lived a much more difficult life. But they found when they compared the microbiome in the East Germans, it was much more diverse. So I think you hit it on the head. I mean, I, I know people get all excited about these things, but Sometimes as doctors, I think we have to give them, the, you know, why spend money? Why if there's side effects? Some people get stomach pain from probiotics. I've seen that. So I tell them, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if it's. Well, um, again, I'm not, again, not against probiotics, but something I say in my lectures, I say, you know, a city needs diversity, which you've said. We need lawyers, but you don't add a million lawyers every day to the city. <laughs> Hopefully not in the United States. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you need, the, you need a cluster of bacteria and, and that magic mix isn't been determined yet. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to probably one of our final subjects. And I want to ask you about diet. Now I've been fortunate on my podcast. I've had some really interesting, terrific people. I've had Barry Sears, who wrote many popular books on the zone diet. I've had Alessio Fasano, who's the celiac expert in the, probably the world. I've had someone in your neck of the words, Walter Longo, you know, who's been doing oh. the fasting mimicking diet. He was really interesting. Is there a diet that you feel strongly in recommending for your IBS patients that you feel, I mean, obviously every person's different, but that, you know, sort of some general guidelines of what the do's and don'ts. Well, so, so we, we came up with our own diet called the low fermentation diet. There's an extreme version, which is the low FODMAP diet, but it's not the same. So I don't like that one, but yeah. Yeah, The low FODMAP diet is extreme, hard to maintain, and you can't stay on it because you get nutritional Mm. deficiencies. Mm. But what we, what the vision of the low fermentation diet was, you can go to any restaurant, you'll find food. 
So it's not that extreme. That's important. And the second thing is we know that the reason the bacteria builds up is the cleaning waves of the gut aren't happening. And the cleaning waves of the gut only happen when you're not eating. So if you're nibbling and noshing all day, you're never going to get cleaning mm-hmm. waves. Mm-hmm. So part of the diet is less fermentables. The other part of the diet is don't eat between meals. Give yourself mm-hmm. a chance to clean up so that the bacteria and the debris can be stripped out so the bacteria don't have as much to grow on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that combination seems to be quite good for baby. I thought that was a really important point you made in the book about the cleaning waves. I think people could relate to that because, like, you're right, people – tend to with it from nervous habits. I, I know myself, I, honestly, I, uh, when I was, when I'm in private practice, I used to be so hyped up. You could tell me like I get excited and I found myself constantly eating, you know, in between patients. And finally somebody tipped me off about, I, like I drink green tea and I find that it, first of all, it keeps me a little more steady and calm and it, and it kind of curbs my appetite. So you know, I can wait till lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> for, me, my for my pacifier, it's coffee, black coffee. Black no coffee. Calorie. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It keeps you focused. Yeah. Um, but would you say, though, I just I want to get some specifics here. Low, low fermentation diet, essentially avoiding processed, simple sugars. I mean, that makes sense. Does it mean avoiding milk? Does it mean avoiding cheese? You know, these are things that I tend to recommend patients. I, I don't like to be extreme. I try, What I always try to tell patients is I'm not here to punish you, but I'm here to make you feel better. And these are foods that if you can eliminate or limit, I think you're going to feel better. So I don't know. Is there any just like a handful, like four or five things that you say, these are no-nos on the low fermentation yes. diet? No beans. That includes hummus or chickpeas. No beans, period. Those Mm -hmm. are like X's. Mm -hmm. No non-digestible sugars. So the Mm -hmm. sucralose and the stevia Mm -hmm. and all those things, you're just feeding the bacteria. You don't get any calories, but they get all the calories. Okay. Um, And then try to reduce your cruciferous vegetables uh, because those are going to give you more gas and bloating. So those are the mm. sort of the three biggest principles. It's really sad though. Those are a lot of healthy foods though. You know, I mean, I, again, that's why people get so mixed up, you know, when I I've had, you, you can have an amazing salad with onions, okay. tomatoes and cucumber and a little vinaigrette. Okay. It's just, it's, you know, you can still enjoy salad, but you don't have to have Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and those oh, wow. sorts of things. Even those are high-fiber foods. That's not good for the gut. You know, the foods that are typically high-fiber. Well, uh, let me say this. We've been eating high-fiber. They put fiber in everything. You can have your Cheerios in the morning, and there's fiber in it now that it yeah. wasn't before. Right. And what have we got? We're doing colonoscopies at age 45 instead of 50 now. So what is, hmm. why is that? Why are yeah. there more colon cancers in younger people if fiber was the solution? Everything has fiber. Hmm. I, I'm just, I'm not saying that. No, no, it's a good point. I mean, I, you know, it's, I think that's what's so hard for everybody. They don't know what to eat. And I think you brought up the key point also that, you know, eating is a social thing. I mean, you, you know, people can do some extreme things when they're in really bad shape. I understand that. But, you know, the other question I get all the time when I see a lot of IBS patients, where we put them on certain diets where we think it's less inflammatory. But the, first, the second question out of them is, how long do I have to do this? <laughs> you know, I mean, because the, the choice between, you know, avoiding some of the foods that they love and and, you, and the social aspect of, of eating or having, you know, alcohol, it's a big thing, you know, in the quality of people's lives. Yeah. Well, lifestyle is critical. I mean, if if you don't consider lifestyle when you're trying to develop things for patients, the compliance will be zero or Mm -hmm. or minimal. And I think that's, that's why, you know, how we proposed this diet was you're not really getting rid of 
you're getting rid of the things that really hurt you and you'll yeah. know that they hurt you and you will be willing to do mm. it. But don't go to the extreme. Otherwise, you end up non-compliant. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to leave or add for our listeners? Anything exciting that you're excited about or, you know, we should keep an eye out for in the future in this area? Well, one of the things we didn't really touch on too much is we do finally have a blood test for IBS. And that's oh, the... right. Uh, I, th- I saw uh, that. You mentioned that. Yes. Yeah. So though you, you measure anti-CDTB, you measure anti-vinculin, especially a second generation test. And you can stop the madness. You basically know you have IBS. So I think that that's a. Can you spell that for me, or just I'm, I'm just. It's, I, okay. it's sort of the same company we'd mentioned earlier, but it's IBS Smart. IBS and Smart. It, it basically stops the cycle, and you know you had food poisoning that caused it. That's one of the one of. Wow, the is this available in the major labs now, like LabCorp, Quest, and stuff? No, like it's just just through IBS Smart. You have to go to the website. Oh, you have to go to them. So it's a blood test. Hmm. Correct. Correct. Oh, wow. And that solves a lot of problems. So which, what would you compare the accuracy of that versus the breath testing? Do you think it's higher or just another additional support? I think it's different. So the, the blood test tells you you have IBS full stop and that you got it from food poisoning. And please avoid any food poisoning again if you can or, or eat very mm-hmm. carefully. Mm-hmm. And it also can give some idea on prognosis on how hard you're going to be to treat and how likely the rifaximin treatment will last versus relapse. And then the breath test tells you what gases you have and what sort of bacterial composition you might have. And then that tells you how to treat. So they're sort of complementary. Uh, oh, wow. In there, okay. In that makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry. You said with the hydrogen sulfide, is there any specific new antibiotic or something that you use to uh, treat that? Or is it still so, the Stifaxin and like neomycin? Or? Well, uh, so for hydrogen, it's rifaximin that we do. What I do for methane is rifaximin and neomycin based on a randomized control trial. That was published, and for hydrogen sulfide, it's new. So we are currently using rifaximin with bismuth, based on a study from the 1990s on bismuth. Uh, that wasn't uh, it, wasn't that in Pepto Bismol? Yeah, Pepto Bismol, <laughs> exactly. I remember when I was a kid, I had a stomach ache. They, they took out the Pepto Bismol. You know, I wasn't sure if they were, my mom was poisoning me or not, but uh. <laughs> yeah, and cod liver oil mixed those. Well, two the, the pink it, it was that it was a, it was like bubble gum pink. I don't know what they. Yeah, but that's, what what they put that's, in. that's interesting. Mm. But so that's sort of what we're doing now. But we are in the midst of developing a new drug uh, program for treating hydrogen sulfide and other uh, diarrhea type conditions. So, so stay tuned. There's a lot to come. So, wow. and, and so if I leave you with one thing, I think that's what you were where you were heading to is that IBS patients should be optimistic. We we have good and decent targets. Uh, new things are coming and. I think we now can say this is not irritable bowel syndrome. We can scratch off syndrome and say this is a disease Mm. because we now have biomarkers. So that should give some patients reassurance, even though our treatments aren't perfect yet, they're coming. Wow. This was terrific. I I hope all my listeners and God forbid anybody that suffers from irritable bowel disease has a lot of optimism because I became a lot more educated today and I'm sure so many of our listeners did too. So if any of our listeners have any questions, please go to my Twitter at The Smartest Doctor in the Room or Instagram, and we'll try to answer them. Dr. Pimentel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to get us up to date on this really important condition. It's my pleasure. This has been great. All right. Thank you so much again. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.